You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Our guest today is the author of a book, Human Transit. He runs the website and blog with the same name. He's a consultant. He's a speaker, and he is an innovator. Jarrett Walker, welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Chuck. You were on a couple years ago at CNU, and, and I'm going to say right now, just to get started, I am one of those people who is... I think you call an outsider looking in. I, I'm not a transit rider. Uh, I live in a very small town. We have dial-a-ride, which in many ways is worse than having no transit system at all, at least in terms of our dialogue. So I've always been hesitant to have you on because I felt a little bit like I would be wasting your time, like I was not going to be asking intelligent, thoughtful questions. I've I've done enough homework now where I hope I don't waste your time, but I, I, I want you to feel free to start at a one-on-one level. I want you to start with geometry. You talk a lot about how geometry essentially doesn't lie and is not subject to focus groups. Can you talk a little bit about just transit and the geometry of cities and why the two are, are a match for each other? Sure. I think it's helpful to start not so much with transit as a product as what is the problem for which transit is a solution. The problem for which transit is the best solution, and in many cases the only solution, is the problem of providing mobility and access to lots of people at fairly high densities, or in generally in cases where there is a strong disincentive to driving. So right there you can see that transit has a somewhat, in the US, the way it's constructed, uh, Canada, too, to a degree, has a somewhat contradictory mission because there isn't a contrary expectation that we run some transit service everywhere, regardless of density, because certainly there are every, everywhere there are people who can't drive and need some sort of mobility assistance. Transit in the sense that we evaluate with ridership and transit in the sense that achieves um, goals of substantially reduced car traffic, substantially reduced car dependence, which is, of course, connected to the ability to use street space for something other than cars. All that really arises in places where there is sufficient demand for big vehicles running in regular patterns to be the right answer. So, you know, there's a lot of chatter right now about small-scale transit of one kind or another, and the word transit's being used to mean lots of different things. But fundamentally, really, really successful transit is transit that's carrying a lot of people on relatively few vehicles. That's the essence of what makes it highly effective. There's some geometry about where that's likely to happen. And that geometry is primarily about density, how many people are around every possible stop, uh, walkability, which is can the people around the stop actually walk to the stop, linearity, which is are things in sufficiently straight lines that we can draw logical transit lines connecting them, and uh, proximity, which is just are things close enough together that we don't have to cross big rural gaps to get to them. You know, that's really what determines 
whether you've got a place where transit can succeed. And, and I want you to notice that you know, as, I, as I list those things, you're thinking about your own town, and it's going to sound like I'm passing judgments about your own town, and whether it's a good place or not, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm simply describing some basic math about why transit works as it does. And by the way, if you Google an article of mine called The Transit Ridership Recipe, you'll find an explanation of all this with some little diagrams. We'll take you through it. One of the things that I found very approachable about your work is that you go down the path that we don't have to have transit everywhere to be successful. I, I, I know a, a lot of people who advocate for transit, advocate for transit at all times in all places. Can you talk a little bit about why that is maybe not the right approach and, and why you've have a more nuanced understanding of, of where transit works well and maybe where transit doesn't work as well and, and, and why there's a important difference between those two? Yeah, it comes right down to what you mean by working well. A lot of people believe that the measure of transit working well is that it has lots of riders at a relatively low cost. You, you read the newspaper, you look at the way average journalists write about this stuff, and they just assume that. They assume that the ridership is the measure of success. Well, if we were designing a public transit network for high ridership, we wouldn't go everywhere. We would think like a business, which is to say we would concentrate our service in the places where we are most likely to succeed. We'd concentrate places where we have a concentration of potential customers and also where our competitor, the private car, is at the greatest disadvantage, which tends to be in bigger, denser cities and in denser parts of metro areas. And so that's what we would do if we were pursuing ridership. And in any community I've worked in, there is an obvious high ridership thing to do, and that involves not going to a lot of the town because those parts of the town are just not conducive. They aren't giving me the density, walkability, linearity, that I need to say that we're going to have a good transit market that lots of people will ride. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't serve those places. What we always say is if you serve those other places, you need to have a reason other than ridership, and you should be keeping track of and making clear about the fact that you're doing this for a reason other than ridership. I generally call that other reason coverage. Coverage is the contrasting justification of, of services where we, we, we run services to places where we know we're not going to get high ridership for a non-ridership purpose. And the non-ridership purpose may be lifeline access to people with severe needs. It may be various perceptions of equality or equity, which get defined lots of different ways. It can just be uh, purely political. You know, if we're going to have seven councilors supporting the measure, we need to hit seven council districts, that kind of thing. Those are all, you know, perfectly good reasons why people demand coverage services, low ridership coverage services. And our role is basically to help communities think about this trade-off as well as many other trade-offs and reach an intelligent decision about what mix of ridership and coverage services they want. It's not that coverage services are bad. It's just that if you're being evaluated on ridership, you wouldn't run them. So you have to be smarter about how you talk about what your goals are and what's going to count as success if you're going to run coverage service. In that trade-off between ridership and coverage area, it, it seems a lot of time like our transit systems today 
maybe were originally envisioned based on coverage area. And I'll even go so far as to say they are originally envisioned for that person that has no other option to serve the disadvantage. Has that affected our cultural mindset regarding transit? Has that affected how we uh, have tended to look at transit systems and reforming them, some of the work that you've done to increase ridership? Right. Um, yes, there's that history. There's also a history of evaluating them on ridership. The real problem that we have is that transit agencies are being given contradictory direction. They're being evaluated on contradictory measures. And then we yell at them because they're not you know, satisfying our contradictory expectations. Right. You know, you might as well tell your taxi driver to turn right and left at the same time. You know, it's that stark. It's that ridiculous. If we're going to measure transit agency outcomes on ridership, you need to let them run service design for ridership. And you need to not yell at them when they say, well, that means we can't go by Mrs. Jones house, even though she's here standing in front of you with all of her Facebook friends telling you how much she needs the service. And so if we are going to go by Mrs. Jones's house, I mean, if we are going to satisfy everyone who has everyone who has a severe need or a feeling of an entitlement to a bus that has two people on it, right? We're not doing that for a ridership reason. And so let's be clear about what we're doing and why we're doing that. There's nothing wrong with doing that as long as we're being clear. So that, for example, the fact that you're running that empty bus doesn't get read as failure. Right. It's not the transit agent isn't, isn't failing when it runs an empty bus in a low ridership area. It's doing something that it is being demanded to do for a non ridership reason. That's the key distinction. If we were going to and I'm going to say this in a harsh way, if we were going to just apply rote dollars and cents, are there a lot of parts of our transit system that we just wouldn't cover then? If you're talking about a, a dollars and cents measure that comes down to ridership. So, for example, um, you'll hear what percentage of our costs are we covering with fares? That's another way of saying ridership. What's the subsidy per passenger? That's based on ridership. So any of those kinds of metrics that ultimately vary with ridership uh, are going to push a transit agency toward running, le- running more ridership service, which means less coverage service. So you have to make sure when you go to a transit agency with those metrics, that that's really what you mean. You know, the classic example is, you know, the the relatively conservative elected official from a low-density outer suburban area who gets on the transit board, starts banging on about, you know, we need less subsidy per passenger, and the transit manager quite accurately says, sir, the best way to do that is to cut all the service to your to your district. Right. The best way to do that is to not go into those outer suburban, you know, unwalkable, low density kinds of places that he may feel entitled to have the bus go to. So that's, you know, there's just no getting around that. And it's not. And again, I will never say what you should do. What I do is convene communities in the presence of the math, in the presence of the geometry and help them figure out what they want to do about that. How does this concept of a total transportation investment fit into that? Clearly, if we're talking about the suburban city council member, they're not lacking for transportation investment, are they? Right. In fact, this will seem much fairer. You know, when, when I'm talking to the, to the suburban city council member who isn't really sure he likes transit, but his attitude is usually, well, as long as we're, I'm paying for it, I'd better get some. 
And that often becomes a reason for, you know, why transit agencies are forced to run low ridership services. Well, there's another way you could think about that, which is to think about the uh, fairness of the totality of the transportation investment. People who live in the dense parts of cities, people who live at high density, who tend to be, um, have the greatest need for transit and the greatest ability to generate ridership, those people need a lot less asphalt per capita than someone who lives in an outer suburb. And if you thought in terms of that, of sort of, you know, square feet of asphalt per capita, you realize right away that, you know, in the inner city, we get by with very little of that. In a very low density area, you need a lot of it because you need to cover long distances and there aren't many people. If we could think about the totality of transportation investment, it would look fairer than what we usually do, which is to try to have a conversation about the fairness of transit in isolation. B because however much you spend on coverage, it's impossible to achieve something that everyone will, will experience as fair. In fact, uh, I argue in my book, one of the reasons I'm reluctant to use the word fairness is because uh, people come with completely different definitions of it. There is no single agreed definition of what a fair transit system is. Is it really at the end of the day, then, a cultural conversation that needs to happen? I mean, are we, is one of the reasons we struggle with transit because we really haven't defined what we're trying to do with our transportation investments? I think that's absolutely right. Transit uh, agencies, and this has been, you know, my life's work for the last 20 years, really. Um, transit agencies have not demanded clear direction from their communities about what the community wants them to actually prioritize. This is really where my role has been, if you will, to put elected officials to work. This is what elected officials are for, is to make those hard reality-based choices about which is more important than which. Elected officials all know about this. It's basically the same experience you have when you're drawing up a municipal budget. You have to decide what's more important than what, and you have to make painful conversations about priorities. Um, and that's essentially you know, what we're trying to do in the transit space with encouraging communities to think about these unavoidable trade-offs. Because in the absence of doing that, you know, they'll just keep yelling at their transit agencies because they're not getting something that they feel they're entitled to. But if they don't understand the math, you know, yelling at their transit agencies isn't gonna help. A lot of the major transit investments that I see happening seem to spawn out of like a 1970s commuter mentality. The idea that we'll have a, a central city and then we'll commute people in. And if we can move people out of their cars and into a train, uh, that will just make it easier for people to drive. There's a, another mentality that I see kind of starting to have more primacy in places. And that has to do with essentially creating a high frequency transit network, uh, the ability to get around in a place. Do those two mindsets compete with each other in a practical sense? And is there kind of one that you would prefer over another? Everybody's mindset pretty much arises from their own daily experience, right? If you live out in a suburb and your problem is getting into the central city, then, you know, that's going to seem to you like the most important thing transit could do. If you live in an inner city where you're trying to get to many different places and getting around in the city, that's really where the high frequency grid sings. It's really where that where that pattern is most effective. And so we're really just talking about the right solutions for different places, uh, different parts of a region. I'll emphasize too, though, that there is a larger problem there, which is that the standard 
peak commuter express service, it doesn't matter whether it's a bus or a train, um, is very, very expensive per passenger to operate. And particularly if it is the service that is flowing into the single big downtown at eight in the morning, flowing back at five in the afternoon. That's because all the trains or buses or, and drivers who piled up in the city with, at 9 a.m. as a result of all these inbound trips, they all have to go back out because your work shift has to end where it began. And you have all of these very short shifts, and it's difficult to get people to go to work to work for just three hours. So, And you have to own a fleet that you don't use very much, and the distances are very long. If you ride a half-full to two-thirds full commuter express bus or commuter express train, your travel is probably being subsidized much more than if you ride a quarter-full municipal bus running a frequent network. Because it's, it's the problem not just of the peaking, but of the single directional nature. And there are cities that do much better at this. Los Angeles comes to mind because Los Angeles is so multi-directional, because people are going all directions at once. There isn't that huge single flow uh, in the morning and going back the afternoon. So those are some of the issues. Uh, suburban commute service is very expensive. There are many subtle ways in which it is cross-subsidized by urban service, but uh, you know, it is part of the larger political consensus that makes regional transit agencies possible. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'd like to kind of contrast the L.A., experience, which I have been told uh, by people who have, have kind of pushed back against LA being a car city, who said LA has some of the best transit in the country. Can you contrast that with like uh, Washington, D.C. or, uh, you know, a, a place that has maybe a more well-developed, but uh, I'm thinking more high-end kind of transit system? Right. So, I would say that Los Angeles has a lot of work to do on its transit system and that it is doing that work. It is inevitably constrained by the legacy. You know, we are all forced to live in the world laid out for us by our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And L.A. has the problem of the particular legacy that, you know, people's grandparents and great-grandparents wanted for them, which was lots of roads and everybody driving everywhere. Um, L.A. has now grown to a point. It's, a, it's an extraordinary city because I don't know of any other place where there is such a massive consensus that the basic way the city was laid out is not working. I mean, there's a sort of complete existential rejection of how the city was built. And I find that very unusual. Most people allow their views to be conditioned by how their city is and don't really question it. But the urgency about you know transit is so extreme. You know, we're getting 70 percent yes on very expensive um, transit, you know, new taxes for transit, 70%, yes. Um, there's just an overwhelming sense of urgency about that. Transit in LA is not everything it could be because they're still scrambling to essentially compensate for all those decades of, of non-investment. But on the other hand, Los Angeles just has superb geography for transit. It's hard to imagine a better city geographically, precisely because you look out over it and there are clusters of towers far apart, settled here and there, and those create those great two-way markets where people are commuting both way at the same time, uses the capacity very efficiently. And then you have a street network that's ideally suited to the high-frequency grid. It's mostly a grid in city like Chicago that gives you those very easy north-south, east-west paths where if you just run enough service, run enough frequency and get the service running fast enough, 
you get these multiplier effects where you where it just becomes very easy to change from one route to another and get to wherever in the city you're going. The geography could hardly be better. It's just a matter of, you know, Los Angeles still obviously having to catch up after many decades of neglect. I want to ask you a question about building incrementally. We talk at Strong Towns a lot about our cities needing to kind of grow in this broader, more incremental way, as opposed to large transformative investments, many small investments over a broad area. But when we get to transit, I get a lot of pushback. I get people saying, well, Chuck, you can't do transit incrementally. It, it doesn't work that way. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. Can you talk about that? Is it possible to do transit incrementally? Can we scale transit over time? Or is that is that a crazy notion? Do we have to either be all in or not in at all? Let me be very clear. Yes, you can do transit incrementally. Yes, you can get almost anywhere by starting with incremental improvement. You, it, it doesn't mean you don't need big infrastructure. What it means is that the need for big infrastructure arises out of the fact that you've built a corridor that buses can't serve anymore. And some of the best um, transit projects in the country, they're incredibly expensive, but they're, they are the thing you have to do once you've done everything you can with buses really can be justified in those terms. I'm thinking about the Wilshire subway in Los Angeles, the Second Avenue subway in New York, the Broadway subway in Vancouver, uh, as three of the most obvious examples where buses are doing everything they can. And now we have built demand, transit demand to a point where we just have to do something higher order. That is, I think, a logical relationship between service and infrastructure. You use bus service to grow incrementally toward where you're ready to do the big infrastructure. There's another theory of infrastructure, though, which is that the reason we need the Big Bang is to attract a more elite rider than those who are attracted to buses. You know, sometimes you have cases where there really is no transit value being added, like when you introduce a streetcar that's going to be stuck in traffic instead of a bus. Um, it doesn't do anything that a bus can't do. But even where we are building um, services that are going to be faster than buses, we as planners will certainly notice that there's a subliminal message of the reason this has to be so expensive is that we're trying to appeal to a higher class of people. So the big warning I have to always give is if you are a very fortunate person who tends to sit in powerful rooms making powerful decisions, you know, if you are a millionaire, if you are you know, an executive, you have to start by remembering that most people are not like you, that you represent a small minority. And that, therefore, your personal tastes are in what you would like in transportation are a very poor guide to what will make a good investment for the entire city. So, you know, when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I drive my BMW and I like my BMW. And what are you going to do to get out of my, me out of my BMW? My answer is there's no there's no public interest in getting you out of your BMW because there aren't that many of you for it to matter. What matters is the way we incrementally expand people's liberty and opportunity through transit you know, so that people who are in a financial or personal position where transit makes sense for them, they don't own BMWs. Maybe they own, you know, 1989 Chevys. For those people can make the switch. What about this notion that we have to build something big and permanent looking? We, we've got to have, you know, tracks in the ground and overhead wire. Otherwise, we won't get developers to build. We won't get people to commit to it. What, what, yeah, what, that's called that's called infrastructure hostage taking. You know, you you basically 
um, you know, you basically give over hostages, you lock up a certain amount of money in the ground, and therefore the real estate industry thinks that's permanent. That's actually a really bad guide to permanence. Let's take one of the most obvious examples. At the same time that people were going around saying we have to have streetcar tracks in the streets that the service will be permanent, we were going around and ripping up old freight tracks in the same neighborhoods, um, clearly indicating that rails in the street don't indicate permanence. In fact, you have the whole part of the whole street American streetcar story is about the martyrdom of the original streetcars, which were torn up by evil people. It's not really the, the total story, but that's the story we hear. And of course, that story proves that those racks, tracks in the street didn't make it permanent. What is actually permanent is high ridership service. If you want service to be permanent, then you want service to succeed in ridership terms. Because if it doesn't succeed in ridership terms, the infrastructure isn't going to save it. That's the reality over and over. You've got to remember that transit operating costs are, the transit costs are primarily operating costs, and that's got to make sense in terms of ridership. So that's why it's so important to recognize real permanence. To say that a transit corridor is going to be permanent is to say that it has permanent high ridership. And to say that it has permanent high ridership means that the land use conditions, the physical conditions, are favorable. comes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, density, walkability, linearity. If that's there, you've got permanent high ridership. So ultimately, the permanence that realtors should be looking for is actually the permanence that they are creating with dense development. The permanence of the land use pattern is what matters, not whether there are tracks in the street. I was on the outskirts of Portland with uh, some of the transit planners there. And, and one of the things that was pointed out to me as being a, a huge win for them was this art installation at the station. The station itself had very little built around it. They were planning some, some, a big investment, hopefully in the future, but, uh, it, it was pretty barren. The planners seemed very, very happy about this art installation. Essentially, I, I've heard you talk about the uh, dependent rider or derogatorily people call them captive riders, taking them for granted and, and kind of making a system based around getting that guy out of their BMW. Right. Uh, let me say my, my parents were public art experts. I grew up in the arts. I have a degree in an arts field, so I'm all for public art. I think that public art has an incredibly positive role if it is bottom up if it has arisen out of the community, if it is therefore an expression of a community's particular values. Um, I think that top-down public art is probably less effective, but and no one has any problem with there being an aesthetic dimension to service. The larger issue, though, is how much, when the question becomes how much less service are we going to have so that we can pay for this? That's really the frame in which you need to think about that question. So I'll, I'll switch that to a common example. Reed Ewing and Keith Bartholomew in their book, um, it came out about 10 years ago, they used the word transit has become dull and utilitarian. Utilitarian, of course, is a derogatory word meaning useful. Right. Um, the, notion, <laughs> right yeah. the notion was that there's something wrong with the fact that transit is just useful as opposed to beautiful in the way we think it should be. And they used the example of, you know, whimsical bus shelters that create delight. They included a photograph of a famous Japanese bus shelter that's shaped like a strawberry. And my response to that was, okay, 
How much service are we, less service are we going to run so that we can have those? How many people are going to, are we going to tell that they can't get where they're going when they need to because we chose instead to invest in cuter bus shelters? If and when that is the trade-off, my job is to make that trade-off visible and not let it get concealed behind vague romantic notions. I'm fine with public art. I'm fine. You know, I'm great. I, I love beauty. I want that to be part of the experience. But part of the of the beauty to me is the beauty of people having great lives and being liberated to do what they want to do because the transit system works for them. And that requires sheer quantity. So I point, for example, to the San Francisco bus shelters that were introduced uh, a few years ago, which have a very simple kind of waveform to them. They're, they're nice. They're distinct. They say something about San Francisco, and yet they're designed to be just stamped out of a kit of parts very cost-effectively. Because the crucial thing about transit is that transit is about big scale, and if your idea doesn't scale, it doesn't matter. That's why we've got to be very careful, too, about the demonstration project, the idea that we'll just do this little thing over here, and that will see if it works, and then it will take off. Very few things in transit. That, that works fine for a lot of, of product development kinds of ways, but it just doesn't work in transit. Because if it doesn't work at the scale of the network, then it probably doesn't work. As a final question, I want to pose to you the whole autonomous car conundrum. And, and maybe we don't have time to get into it too deeply, but I'll, I'll set it up this way. I, I was in Omaha last week and we were having a conversation about transit and a nice little lady in the front row rose, you know, raise her hand. She, uh, <laughs> is well into retirement age and she referred to this, you know, burgeoning technology of, uh, autonomous vehicles and how it basically is going to make transit systems obsolete and, and make the entire conversation we were, ha- we were having kind of silly. I had an answer for her, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to give your answer to her. There are three big kinds of problems in transportation, especially urban transportation, and they have three different kinds of solutions. And although it's fashionable to want to mix them all up and create some sort of romantic or sexy vision of the future, you've got to keep one foot on the floor. And to do that, you've got to think about these three questions separately. But first of all, there is the problem of emissions and energy efficiency for which the solution is electrification. Then there is a problem of safety and use of time for which the solution is automation. And then there is a problem of the efficient use of space in dense cities for which the solution is big vehicles that use space efficiently. Those are three different problems. And we can certainly imagine a future in which those three things get combined in the electric automated bus, right? Electric automated bus. Those are the solutions to all three problems combined as they apply to a big city. Now, there are plenty of places where autonomous cars are going to be great, but they're going to be the places that have room for them, like outer suburbs. In dense cities, in places where space is precious, they're going to be a disaster. If they, if they are allowed to just, just go everywhere in a free market way, they're going to create their own congestion. Um, their own problems. And that's why, by the way, I want to give Uber and some of those companies credit that they are looking ahead to road pricing and to the prospect that we, that they will have to, at some point, pay some sort of, of pricing that, that gives them a reason to use the road space efficiently. The notion that autonomous vehicles can replace public transit is probably true in some places. It's true in the coverage places. It's true in 
outer suburbs, places where transit doesn't work that well anyway. But it's a disastrous vision for cities. Do you think autonomous vehicles are going to make transit cheaper? I think, yes. If we had an autonomous bus, first of all, we already have autonomous transit. Right. Um, right. Many, many subway systems are autonomous now. And you've all, you know, most people have ridden one of these little things at an airport that's autonomous train. But um, when it comes to autonomous buses, which are rapidly under development in places like Europe and China, where they, where they value these things, if we had that, bus service would suddenly become vastly more abundant because the primary limiting cost on, on the quantity of bus service right now is labor. So, you know, I, I look at typical bus systems and I imagine how utterly transformative it would be if the buses just all came every five minutes. Well, we can't afford that now with the cost of labor, but that becomes possible with automation. What that would do is because it would transform the usefulness of buses it would also then transform people's attitudes toward buses. And, you know, we'd be in a much better place. The next time we chat, I, I want to get beyond the, the 101. I, I'm fascinated by your work. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I, I, I love everything you do. I've spent hours and hours now listening to you on YouTube, and it's, <laughs> it's a great chance to get to talk to you. So I, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. Always love what you do, Chuck. Great to talk. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's keep in touch, and let's do this again. Sounds good. Look forward to it. All right. You take care, Jared. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.